Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will begin looking at the next section of 2 Peter chapter 2, which picks up with the end of verse 10 and goes down through verse 16. Peter writes, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. As one who grew up in the 1980s and 1990s, that brought challenges of its own, as I'm sure every childhood did. However, when I think back to the challenges of those particular decades, I don't want to talk about the neon colors or the denim fashions or boom boxes or Walkmans or any other such faddish thing. One of the peculiarities of growing up at that time was the alarming rise of child abductions. As the problem grew, a nationwide alert system was finally developed in 1996 called the Amber Alert, and AMBER is actually an acronym which stands for America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response, and it was a tribute to a child victim of kidnapping and murder, one Amber Hagerman. It is still in use today. What was interesting about that time was how they were trying to make people aware of who a potential kidnapper might be. And so people would come into the schools and speak at student body assemblies and they would build a profile of sorts of what a kidnapper might look like, how they would dress, the type of car that they might drive, and the type of behavior that they would engage in, such as enticing a child near their vehicle with the offer of free candy or something like that. Well, now we've grown in our knowledge, and sadly, profiling a kidnapper is not quite that simple. But law enforcement does use profiles all the time. They can make generalizations about a criminal based on accumulated data from those that they have apprehended. The scriptures say something about a group of people that we need to be on the lookout for that are dangerous. And of course, you can probably guess that because it's what we have been talking about. It's those unwelcome companions of orthodoxy that rise up whenever there is true teaching and accurate teaching about what God has said in his word. And of course, we're talking about false teachers. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So as we get into this section here, we are looking really at the profile of a false teacher. And while there are some things that we can't necessarily build an accurate profile 
uh, for such as the opening illustration there of a kidnapper, what we can do is we can begin to build a profile from the scripture of a false teacher and what they look like. And so as we get into this passage, we are governed by this idea that all false teachers bear certain traits that make them identifiable. And so the question that we have then before us, the natural response to that is, what are those traits? So as we move through this text here, we see starting with the end of verse 10, the first aspect or trait of a false teacher that makes them identifiable is this, that false teachers are proud of their false teaching. Peter says, bold and willful. He starts off a new a sentence that way with those two words, these adjectives that describe them, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Bold and willful. Peter Davids, a commentator, wrote this, the first term indicates people who claim rank, authority, or ability to which they are not entitled. They are bold about something which they really shouldn't be bold about. Another author put it this way, that these two adjectives, bold and willful, smacks of the reckless daring that defies God and man. This characteristic of them is really in opposition to both God and man, and they are daring, really, anybody to come and challenge them. And they think that they have, uh, they think that they have everything that they need to do that. They have been successful in their false teaching. They have amassed a following. They have some modicum of power and wealth and prestige and standing in the world. And so they would dare to defy anybody with a certain measure of boldness, although it's really futile when you think about it. And we really have to ask when we are confronted with these first two characteristics, this pride here that's seen in being bold and willful, uh, where is the humility after all, aren't we as Christians supposed to have some humility in our speech? Romans 15 verse 18, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Or what about 2 Corinthians 10, 12? Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. We see that we're supposed to have a little bit of humility in our speech, and that one aspect, that trait, is severely lacking in the false teacher. This second idea, not just boldness, but willful, is rendered arrogant in other translations. So we have this brash uh, pride that defies anyone to counter them and probably is looking at how they measure success in a worldly standpoint, fame, you know, uh, You've got societal success in terms of wealth and prestige and honor, and they have all the best things and people like them. And and so they're saying, hey, no one can dare to defy me. And so they get very bold and brash there. But then that in turn, they feed each other turns to arrogance or willfulness, uh, where they say, I am going to continue to do this no matter what you tell me or what you show me from the word of God. 
By the way, this word that's translated willful and arrogant in other translations only occurs twice in the New Testament. In the two passages in which this term occurs in the New Testament, the reference is to human impulse violating obedience to the divine command. So human impulse violating obedience to the divine command. In both cases, it is a religious leader or religious leaders who are exposed to this danger or who succumb to it. And in this case, in Peter's case, false teachers are heretics who are afraid of nothing. They have an arrogance about them. They are bold to stand up to man and God. They think that they they say very proudly, beating their chest, let God come and measure me. I can stand up to it kind of reminds you of some of the things that we've seen in scripture until we get to that chance, right? (laughs) I think specifically of the book of Job, although he wasn't brash and he wasn't being a false teacher, but he did need to be put in his place. And when he was trying to defend himself and he had not sinned in any of the things that he had said, but he began to say, listen, rather than giving my defense to you, my so-called friends, I want to have an audience with God. And he began to kind of be brash about that. And then when God shows up and he says, gird up your loins, get ready, here I come. Job is just, his head is hung in shame. And he says, I can't, what, what can I possibly say to you? And I think if false teachers really got a dose of humility that they should have and recognize that God is eternal and holy and infinite and we are but the work of his hands, it would go a long ways. But unfortunately, they're both bold and willful, which contributes to their pride. And we see an, another aspect of this pride, which is in their, their behavior specifically. Not only are they brash and arrogant and bold with regards to their false teaching, but they don't tremble when they utter blasphemy. Uh, and it says that here, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. So blasphemy here is the idea, and we've come across this before, it comes up a lot in the book of Revelation, where we have Satan and the Antichrist and, uh, you know, the beast, the false prophet, you know, blasphemies are written on their, uh, on them, and then blasphemies come from their mouth. Blasphemy is the idea of saying something that's untrue about God or about something that God has said. Okay, that's the accurate way to define blasphemy. And so when we accuse God or when somebody will accuse God of sinning, uh, that is actually blasphemous to say that that he sinned. And there's a movement today uh, that is very destructive that's happening where people are saying that Jesus, because of his enfleshment, the incarnation needed to be saved and therefore we need to be saved. Uh, That is actual blasphemy because that goes against his divine nature and and who he is stated to be in Scripture. So blasphemy, we tend to think of it as a perversion of the truth. It's really speaking against God's revelation, not only about himself, but here specifically, it says that he when they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, this is clearly something that's not just God, but something to do with his angels or his glorious ones. That seems to be the most natural reading of the text. Now, there is some confusion around this, 
But we get glimpses of it when he's talking about his glorious ones because of parallel passages and angelic interaction throughout the scripture. Uh, this idea glory, uh, the original word for that, we would recognize that because it's at the root of where we get our, our word doxology, uh, to to say a word that glorifies God, right? Doxa is glory. So these glorious ones, they really, a lot of commentators take it that they must be angels. And uh they might be these false teachers here on whom the angels pronounce God's judgment in temperate terms. They mock what the angels say. Now, once you recognize where the angels are at this stage in life, it's very fascinating because no more can any other angels fall. Satan and a portion of the angels fell with him but that is not any longer the case. We don't have more angels that are going to fall later on. Their number is sealed. Their fate is sealed. The lake of fire was created just for them, for Satan and his demons. And so when you find God sending his messengers into the world, because they are not tainted by sin nature, right? This is what angels are. They're just messengers. That's actually the translation of what the word is. When they are sent from heaven, uh, to to render to give a message, whether it's uh, times in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, when we see them appearing on earth, they can't but say what God in heaven from the throne has said for them to say. They have no option. They are not going to go against his will. And it's the same with the angelic messengers throughout the book of Revelation who will speak words from heaven to all the earth. Uh, they just simply say what God has told them to say. So if God tells the angels to bring a word of condemnation against false teachers and the false teachers hear that, they mock it and say that it's not true and they are actually guilty of blasphemy at that point because it's not the angels that they're blaspheming. It is literally God's word, which is representative of who he is. And so we have to understand that. Now, we see... A connection to this in the parallel passage that is found in Jude verses 8 and 9, where we encounter this same phrase. This is the other phrase, okay? Uh, with And it gives us some immediate clarification. And here's what Jude says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So first, we consider our position as mankind. According to Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5, we read this, when I look at your heavens, at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Okay. But we're looking specifically at this idea. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And so what we have to consider here is the humility and the low place of man. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with honor and glory. 
There is a sense of hierarchy where the angels are for a time, that is to say that they are higher than mankind. They clearly have more power than humans do. They are active servants and messengers of God sent to do his bidding. And we read that. They never dispute that. Um, I was reading one time uh, the account of Sodom and Gomorrah and very recently, and it was the angel who came to talk with Abraham about what is planned for those cities or what was planned at that time. Fast forward to the end of time in the book of Revelation, and who is it that pours out the bowls of wrath and executes God's judgment on the earth? Revelation 16, it is angels. They have tremendous authority, tremendous power. In fact, angels will be used by God to judge these false teachers. So in a sense, they mock and blaspheme, these false teachers do, their own judges. That is like sitting in the courtroom, hearing the sentence pronounced by the judge, and then spitting in the judge's face. Uh, it's, it's really incredible. So they don't tremble when they blaspheme. And that's the first thing that we should consider here is their relationship to the angels and what the angels are doing. But then not only have we seen the subject of the blasphemy, the angels here, but we see the behavior of the judges. And this is where we'll have to leave it in verse 11. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Just like we read in Jude, where Michael says to the devil, when there's a dispute, he doesn't rebuke him. He says, the Lord rebuke you. But we see here that angels are in fact greater in might and power than all humans, not just false teachers, but you and me. And there is a sense where God has called them to preside over false teachers as a judge. This is what they will do. And while they do occupy this position, greater in might and power, notice what they do not do. They do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against these false teachers, one out of anger that is not true, right? So if we take Jude 9 as instructive, uh, they don't pronounce their own judgment. They don't get worked up when their character is maligned and twisted because the false teachers are twisting the revelation of God and all those things. They don't have uh, a personal vendetta here, and they refuse to render their own judgment. But if we take, again, Jude 9 as instructive, all they can say is, this is uh, of the Lord's doing, and this is what the Lord will do. They don't speak for themselves. They only say what the Lord has instructed them to say. And so we really see here as we begin to build this profile of a false teacher that pride is a huge, huge aspect of what a false teacher is. They are arrogant. They are brash. They double down on their false teaching largely because they have found temporal, immediate success in all things. They have the position, they have the wealth, they have the power, they have the influence. They're considered in a very high regard by lots of people. They have adoring fans and all those things, right? So they become bold when confronted in their sin. They are dare anybody to speak against them. They become arrogant. Uh, it's really, really quite a sight to see. It is very sad. It's very, very destructive. 
And then when they begin to go astray even more in their false teaching, they don't tremble when they begin to be guilty of blasphemy, which is to say that what God has said in his word and the judgment that he has rendered through his angels and through his word is not true. That is actual blasphemy. They don't even tremble when they blaspheme. And that in itself is, again, a huge sign of pride. And that's the first marker that we'll look at. So we'll have to leave it there. Uh, There's so much that can be said, but we'll just try and take it in bite sizes here as we work through this. It is very destructive. I can't say that strongly enough. One of the things that we should walk away from 2 Peter understanding is just how destructive and how damaging and how awful false teaching truly is. It does tremendous damage to the body of Christ and it leads people astray. Uh, False teachers have their own doom before them, but woe to those who lead others astray as well and tear them apart from God's true, one true and living word and the word of God. So we'll end there and pick it up in verse 12 in our next episode. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.